Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Hello, Mr. Fordresser. This is uh, Chewy here, with the producer of the Promotion Man. Uh, you're on with uh, Hi, Fred Chewy. and Lloyd. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. He's and coming out swinging. Going? Coming in hot. Hey, happy, happy morning. Yeah. What's going on over there? It's all good. It's all good. So we were okay. just we were just kind of uh, you know getting ready for you and kind of talking about some of the different highlights of your career, and one sure. of the one of the things we want to kind of exploit uh, a little thicker uh, as we go on is the Kenny Wayne Shepherd uh, um, story. Sure. Because yeah, well, I yeah I've been with him since the beginning. Yeah. Sure. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So um, you ready to get at it? Yeah, man, I got some notes, but uh, I want to just probably talk the most. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. what we want. Yeah, we love okay. guests that talk, <laughs> so I don't have to listen <laughs> <Yeah>. to Fred. <laughs> you know, I've been doing I've been doing radio promotion a good part of my life, so I've had to learn to talk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's get at it. So today's guest is Bill Fordresser. Hey, Bill. Hi, hi, guys. It's uh, great to be with you today. Looking forward to this. Glad to have you on the show, Bill. Yeah, I mean, it's really fun. For me, it's especially fun because uh, we go back to the Ambrosia days. But before we even touch on that, looking at your bio and your history, which is just pretty stellar, the fact that you came out of the University of Illinois that has alumni like Irving Azoff and Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers. um, Yeah. You know, the Gary, uh, what is this? How do you say it? Rich Raff? Gary, Gary Ritzraff, yeah. the lead guitar player, yeah, from Ario Speedwagon. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah. Good dude. And then Dan Fogelberg, yeah. of course. Uh, which Rest in w- peace as well. Yeah, yeah. RIP. We're ripping them all. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's pretty wild that that's kind of where you started. We weren't too far away. I grew up in Michigan. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Good Midwest. Yeah. So you well, started in the record merchandising um, same as me. I was, I started as a male boy. So, but you were in the same kind of groove, right? You know, it's interesting to get in the music business. You really have to start at the bottom and work your way up. Yeah. Uh, you can't work at, walk into a big, uh, role because you have to learn how the, the record business worked. And obviously in the seventies, it's a lot more different than it is now. But in those days, um, it was about, you know, radio it was about getting the records in the stores. It was about doing, you know, spins on the stations and getting the artists out there to do shows to support it. And that was the basis of the music business. And it went along like that for years until, of course, uh, the... the uh, till downloading. Yeah, till downloading. The downloading came. and the sh- file sharing and all the other stuff that's occurred. So, Bill, so I got to... Those were the nuts and bolts. So I got to ask you a question then, because yeah. we had uh, we had Harold Childs from A and M Records on, and we were talking about Peter Frampton, and when that album Frampton Comes Alive came out, I was a, a male boy, and back in the warehouse, we were talking about skids of boxes <laughs> of albums, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So and cardboard, it's all you smelt was cardboard all day long. <laughs> right. So, so you right. remember that fondly, I would imagine. 
you know, it was fun at Record Merch because we had 125 some labels. Wow. And, um, you know, you can imagine the variety of music. Um, one of my vivid memories was uh, Barry White uh, had an, a single come out, I'm Going to Love You Just a Little Bit More, that I got on KHJ. And that was the big radio station in Los Angeles for years, Boss Radio. The boss. And uh, it was 20th Century, number 2018 was the single, and they brought in this huge palette on a skid of, of the singles after it went on KHJ, <laughs> yeah. and I had my picture taken in front of it. Yeah, oh, that's right? awesome. I love that. Uh, Every time I yeah. get sick, I sound like Barry White. <laughs> yeah, he, Barry actually called me at the distributor. He came over and he took me out to lunch. Really? <laughs> Isn't yeah, that cool? Yeah. He took him out to lunch. How cool is that? Who ate more, you or him? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was so excited. I don't think I ate much at all. <laughs> oh, my partner's funny guy. Sorry. He always makes me laugh every episode without fail. Well, that's what keeps you young. Yeah, yeah exactly. definitely. That's why I love him so. All right, so yeah. 20th Century Records. Tell us that story. Uh, well, you know, I was um, mentored by a gentleman named Russ Regan, who uh, was the first person I was uh, able to meet in the music business. And he actually got me my job at Record Merchandising uh, by calling Sid Talmadge. And uh, he said, you got to pay your dues. You got to learn your way through the business. So that's where I started. And I eventually uh, gravitated to a certain types of music. I was able to do pretty well doing radio promotion. So Russ Regan eventually brought me into 20th Century Records uh, to do national promotion. And while I was there, I heard him playing some music down the stairs. I was on the first floor. He was on the second. He had the monster sound system. <laughs> so the next morning, I went in and I said, Russ, what were you playing yesterday? He says, oh, this is some band from uh, you know the uh, Los Angeles area. They're called Ambrosia. And uh, I want to put an album out on them. I said, well... I thought I heard some really cool, like, alternative, like, rock stuff, you know. And we'd had a lot of rhythm records at 20th, you know, as opposed to rock. And I was, I love rock, you know, that was my, my basis. So he played me, Hold On To Yesterday, Nice, Nice, Very Nice, Well, Leave Me Alone. And when I heard Hold On To Yesterday, I just looked at him, I said, that's the single, Russ. And he goes, I don't know, I don't know yet, I'm not sure, you know, I like this... David Pack song, World Leave Me Alone, and da 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 So I said, yeah, but holding on is bluesy, it's different, it's soulful, and it's, it could work at Top 40 and at Rock. And so we went back and forth, but eventually Russ saw my, my wisdom and he put it out. I got to tell you, the so, first time I heard that song, I felt the same way. I was just like, this song is such a, it just sounds so great. And I was in college radio at the time. So imagine today saying uh, a college radio station playing a band like Ambrosia probably wouldn't happen. But back then, it worked so well. And uh, like I said, I, I thought Holding On to Yesterday, still my favorite Ambrosia song that they put out. Well, and you know what it fit was that progressive rock sound, yeah, yeah. you know, which Yes exactly. was doing. And there was a lot of bands doing that. Right. But the interesting thing about that specific album was they had a fold out album cover. It was kind of like a was it like a pyramid bill? It was oh, that like, was that was the second album. Yeah. Okay. That was the second album and it was a pyramid. Yeah, okay, cuz I remember it folded out, which was ex, you know, expensive packaging. Not only that, because of the way it was structured, the albums tend to warp 
because the, the way they were had to be packed in right. that you know with the, the thing on the top yeah but it was uh, that was their idea they they were pyramid people and uh they wanted to have that <laughs> and now it's a collector's item i'm sure oh there's no question so so now let's fast forward a little bit i get hired by warner brothers in 1978 they mm-hmm. sign ambrosia and you right. are a part of that transition as well because that's where I met you. And if I remember correctly, the road manager's name was Warren Wallace. Warren Wallace, right. And uh, Steve Lehman was the other guy. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, these uh, guys, the band of Brosia, David, Joe, Burley, and Chris North, are just the nicest guys. I mean, they're just the nicest guys. You know, it's funny you say that because um, the first time I met them was at their studio. And this was shortly after I just heard the record. And I'm a guitar-holic. You know, I love guitars. And they were the same way. So after they played, they played like four or five songs. And then we just sat around and talked guitars for a long time. And they let me play their guitars, mm. and, you know. And they, we were, we were kind of, we weren't jamming, but we were just talking about guitars. And at that moment, you know, I befriended them, all, all four of them. And they were just Great guys, really warm, not, you know, conceited or any of that. They were just normal uh, rock and rollers. So are any of these uh, guys, are they all still alive? I don't I don't know where they're at currently. Oh, do, you, do you know? Yeah, uh, yes, of course. Uh, Joe Puerta is uh, alive. Uh, they still tour uh, without Dave Pack. Dave Pack no longer tours with them. Mm-hmm. He lives now in Kauai. But Dave had went off and had a great uh, career in production. I, want, uh, I wonder what all these guys think about the uh, the uh, coming back of Yacht Rock with you know bands like Ambrosia and Christopher Cross. I, I wonder if they take that as a compliment because it seems like it's kind of a, got a whole new rejuvenation of their music. Yeah, well, they, they have participated in it, minus Dave. Um, so Burley, Chris, and Joe do, and then they've got some other folks that they've put in the band. Okay. And they do a good show. Yeah. It's a really good show. I mean, you know, when you have material like they have and, you know, the, the, the background and vocals and stuff that they have, uh, you're going to do a great show. You know, they really are good. And then, of course, Dave Pack has done some phenomenal stuff with Michael McDonald and a lot of different people right. uh, as far as producing. So, But the Yacht Rock thing, to go back to your, your, your uh, mentioning that, is extremely popular and it's been very helpful for a lot of these bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I think anything that's going to help music is a good thing. Right. Well, that's and the way I look at it. And the thing is, is uh, how much I feel and biggest part of me were huge singles, like yeah. huge for us. And I was in a breakout market because we had a Warner Brother rep just for Detroit because of the importance of Detroit radio. So I had the state. Right. Of, so I had the state of Michigan was my territory. And I was so successful with Ambrosia as a project that um, the guys really enjoyed me and I had a lot of fun with them. And Warren Wallace actually kidnapped me on their tour bus. <laughs> and I ended up at Kent State for another show, you know, which I had to just kind of stay because I, you know, and then I had to work my way back to an airport. But um, then I got transferred to Houston and was very fortunate that Dana Steele was pro- helping, uh, well, she was a music director at KRBE, which was a huge call letters, powerful radio station. Yeah. And she jumped right uh, into the Ambrosia uh, vibe as well. And we had a wonderful time there. And uh, she even was a part of bringing on a, a show there where we put 
I remember putting David Pack in a helicopter, and it didn't have any doors. Yes, I was there. <laughs> yeah, and he yeah, had, it didn't it have any really doors, and he was completely wigging out. <laughs> yeah, it was really hot, too. Really, really well, hot. Well, Houston. That was always one of my favorite songs to introduce on the radio was Biggest Part of Me because I'd always do the things like, yeah, here's Ambrosia, Biggest Part of Me, which is definitely not below my belt. <laughs> See, I already heard the sound of a zipper coming from you. You probably had a zipper sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, br you bring up how much I feel. That was an interesting story because Dave wrote that song, and when they first when he first played it for Freddie Pirro, the producer-manager, he didn't think it was the band. He said, I, I don't know if we want to do this because, you know, it's not really our image, you know, because of the progressive side of it. But, you know, and I, I heard the demo and I was, that's a hit, guys. Come on. It is a hit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and Freddie was digging his heels in. So I said, you know, I went into him and I said, look, Freddie, you know, I, I don't know how you work your publishing, but this is a huge publishing record. There's a lot of people that are going to do this song. Mm -hmm. He looked at me. He gave me that knowing look. He said, "I hadn't thought about it like that." I said, <laughs> "Well, you know, what you should do maybe is just cut the song. Just go in the studio and cut it and see how what what how it plays out." And of course, when they cut it, they you know, they said, "Okay, we got to we got to come out with it." And then you know, I got a hold of the demo and I went to a, a hit makers convention. I got about twenty program directors in a room. We all had a lot of beer, and I played this thing on my cassette machine. And every one of them said, that's a hit. That's a hit. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I went back to Freddie and said, we got to go with it. So, yeah, by the time it got to Warner Brothers, it was it was well embraced by the band. It's amazing how much uh, work you can get done when you put uh, beer and alcohol down programmers' <laughs> throats, man. I'm telling you. That's a hit. Well, Hell yeah. Well, another comment I want to make about the band, and then we can move on to another, is that they were also one of these bands that could replicate their sound uh live and they were yeah. notorious for putting on a show that was so tight and then every time the show was over we'd all meet back at whatever hotel and they would have a meeting and they would go over the show meticulously oh yeah oh, wow. yeah oh they they were very very uh conscientious about their um their 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 performances and you know we brought a lot of people in to help you know, uh, we had Rice Jones that would come in, and he would sing, and he was a phenomenal singer. And, and, and Toots, who was a great keyboard player, he would go on the road with us. And it really made a difference because you could represent the music that you recorded live, which is what they wanted to do. Yeah. And I think it's really, it's been a, a, a huge factor in their, in their development. Well, that's a great story, and it's a great story about Ambrosia. Now when we look at your bio, you spent some time at TK Records, which is more known for dance, disco, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. But I noticed Bobby Caldwell. When you listen to that Bobby Caldwell hit, what's that big hit again? Um, what You Won't Do For Love. Yes, yeah. What You Won't Do For Love. What an amazing song that is. And when you listen to it, you're convinced, it, you know, he's African-American. And he's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're just convinced because the soulfulness and it's such a beautiful song and his voice is so velvety and rich that you just assume, right? And it's like, well, no, he's a white dude. When you when you see Bobby perform, you think he's like a Sinatra, you know. He's yeah. got those kind of moves and those kind of that kind of background. But uh he's a he's a great guy. I spent about two or three hours driving to a gig for him that he was doing for radio. 
And I, I didn't know what we were going to do for a couple hours because I didn't know Bobby very well, you know. It was the first time I'd really met him. So I started talking about how I love the Beatles. And he said, oh, yeah. So we sang Beatles songs, the two of us, and harmonized <laughs> all the way for two hours in the car. Wow. wow. That's great. And, and, and we became friends, you know. He would sing. I would try. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and then that label had a lot of big disco stuff. Ring My Bell or KC and the Sunshine Band. I mean, huge, Tell huge me, stuff. Tell me about working with KC, man, because that, that just seemed like, you know, I mean, the, the stage show obviously was a party, but I got a, I got a feeling that that party just kept on going, right? Yeah, I was uh, just leaving 20th Century Records at that time. And um, I had known Henry Stone, who ran TK Records. It was a distributor for us in, in uh, Miami. And I left uh, 20th, and I got a phone call from Henry before I hardly even got home. And he said, I want to hire you. I said, are you kidding me? How did you even know I, I left t- 20th? He said, I, I know everything. <laughs> Henry. He said, I want to hire you, and I want to set you up in L.A. So that's what he did. And, uh, you know, at that time, Get Down Tonight had just come out. Mm. Oh, so, huge! Uh, I was I was in the middle of that, and um, he, Casey was a, a, a very much the touring band, yeah. and they were really killer live. I mean, my God, he, he had a horn section. That horn section was, was badass. Was, yeah, like no no other, and he, he he could carry it off, and they danced. They had outfits, and uh, we had a ball. And I went on the road with them, and I became friends with Harry Wayne Casey, who was and Rick Finch, who was the bass player. They were the two guys that cut the records. And I, I told them that um, I wanted to do what they do. I wanted to produce records, and I wanted to, you know, be able to, to create music like they did. I said, but, you know, it's so hard to do it. And, he's, and so two weeks later, they del- delivered a TX-3340 4-track to my house. Oh, wow. They gave me one. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of guys they were. Yeah, just great. All right, so going through your bio, we get to Atlantic Records, and... Some heavyweights. I mean, oh my gosh, Doug Morris and Bob Greenberg. And Bob Greenberg came up on a prior podcast, Lloyd, because remember we talked to uh, Paul Fishkin, right? And when he started uh-huh. Modern Records, he it was him and Greenberg, and then they brought in, or they made uh, Stevie Nicks a partner of right. Modern Records, right, right, right. Um, but that's of course down the road from when you were there. But th- these guys were heavyweights. What was it like to be a part of their world? Well, that was um, one of those things that happened to me. I, um, I I got a call from John Sebastian, who was KHJ at the time, program director, and he said, I just had a discussion with Doug Morris. And I said, yeah. And I, 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 like you guys are saying, you know, that's, that's royalty in the music business. Totally. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I told him that he should hire you because you're the best West Coast promotion man. And I'm like, nice. you told Doug Morris what? <laughs> yeah, he said, I just thought you should know. You should follow up if he doesn't call you. And lo and behold, two days later, Doug Morris called me, and he was in L.A., and he interviewed me, and he hired me, you know, and I worked with Bob Greenberg out of the Atlantic offices. Wow. And I was there about three or four months, and I got a call from Freddie Pirro, Ambrosia's manager, and he said, the guys want you to come here and come to work, and they want you to work on their next album in the studio with them and produce with them. So here I am, guys. 
I've got Doug Morris and Bob Greenberg in one hand and Ambrosia in the other. Wow. And I have to I have to make a career decision because, you know, I got the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. If you think about Atlantic <laughs> Records at that moment yeah. in time, I mean, just right off the top of your head with Atlantic Records at that moment in time, you had Rolling Stones, Foreigner, ACDC. Who else? Exactly. Uh, you know, I I, they, I kind of mix them in with Electra. It's hard for me to differentiate because, and I was only there for like four months because I called Doug Morris up. I'll never forget this, and I said, Doug, I don't know even how to say this. To you. Yes. How do you, you know, quit somebody like that? I, you know, I've been like three or four months, and, and you know, he said, well, "What's the matter, Bill?" I said, "Well, Ambrosia, da 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 da." And there's this silence. He goes, "You know what? You need to go do that." Really? Wow. Yeah. So he I gave you his really? blessing. He said, yeah, man, that's your dream. Do it. Yeah. Well, that's a good boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I will never forget this moment, you know, because you, you let me off the hook with, you know, just pat me on the back and say, like a father, you know, go, well, go do that. And, you know, we got a little history about Doug through Paul Fishkin because uh, Doug got in the business mostly in singles. He started where it was a smaller company and they were just putting out singles. Um, and then he ended up joining the Atlantic family and obviously working his way up to the very top. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was so uh, grateful to him uh, to being for being like that. You know, he made my decision easier than, than it would have been because he could have said, oh, you can't leave. You got, you know, you're with a major, you know, all the other things. But he was like, follow your dreams, dude. All right. So I so so I did. And then we spin off to some baby labels that start shooting out in the nineties. One was called Zoo Entertainment. Let me stop you right there. Maynard James cool. Keenan. Is he a, are you a fan or do you want to tell the guy to go F off? Because I'm kinda I'm kinda in I'm kinda in between. I'll tell you, man. He's a cool. tough one. Maynard? Yeah. Yeah, he. This is funny story. All right, so, so who's? Wait a minute. Who's Maynard? He's the lead singer of Tool. He's the he's the front man you've never seen. Oh, okay. When you see him live, he's usually hiding behind a curtain to the side over there. He's a very. Uh, so we're talking about Tool. Tool, yes. All right. So, all right yeah, yeah. All right. All right, all right yeah. Go ahead. Give me a good story about Maynard. <laughs> well, I got to. I, you know, they brought me uh, into uh, to work with with Tool, obviously, because Zoo had so many, and they had Matthew Sweet. That was their other big act. And I loved him. Sweet. And, um, Sweet guy. Yeah, so a great guy, yeah. And uh, so Tool had had a couple of records out, and, you know, I had uh, some success with them. And I, w I went to the shows, of course, because they were so incredible. And I, I hung out with Maynard a couple of times, and he showed up at the office within a week, and he wanted to just hang out, wow. which I thought was pretty incredible. So he came in the office, we shut the door, and uh, I had my assistant go get us uh, a six-pack of beer, and it was late in the day, and just so we could hang out. And so she ran out, and when she came back, uh, her name was Shelby. And Maynard took a look at her, and he goes, who are you? <laughs> and I said, down, Maynard, down. And he said, well, I'm a Shelby. I work at Bill. He got the biggest crush on this girl. And he would come into my office anytime he was there and just sit there and hang out just to talk. See, he never got anywhere with it, but just to talk to Shelby. Yeah. And Shelby, you know, she was just like, you know, you know, young girl and doing what she was told. And she was a great assistant. 
But Maynard, you know, forever was after her. So when I moved to New York to work for Electra, I got a call from from Maynard and the manager at the time, Ted Gardner, that they had a new record. They had left Zoo, Zoo closed, and they wanted to sign to Electra. And I think a, a main reason they wanted to sign Electra because Metallica was signed to Electra. Yeah, right. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're favorites. So anyway, they sent me the album over. I sent it up to the office with the A&R people. They listened to it, and they were like, I don't know, I don't know what's up. I said, you guys are nuts. You've got to sign this. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't. They, they didn't sign it. So, uh, you know, it, and I was politically, I'd only been at the company a few months, so I, I had to be kind of, you know, sober about it. Right. Well, before so, we switch over to Electra and your history there, I got to find out with Lloyd what what's your deal with Maynard, dude? Oh, Maynard and I have a great history. Oh, he, he he invited me onto his <laughs> tour bus one time to hear his new project Pussifer, which is kind of, you know, he does a lot of side stuff. Okay. And he literally was kind of feeling me out the entire time cuz no one had heard their music yet. It was literally me, him, and his dog sitting on the tour bus, um, and he's asking me about my history, and I told him I grew up in North Carolina on a farm. Well, this was right after he had just bought his vineyard there in Arizona, so we literally talked oh, 30 to 45 minutes about agriculture and the growing of wow. you know, wine, and then finally he put on this this Pussifer music to, to get my opinion on it, and I, I told him I liked it, and I thought it was great, and he basically explained to me at a tool show we were at backstage that he had put out this Pussifer CD in a blank white CD cover and left it in all the girls' bathrooms because he said, I'm, I'm trying to get my female audience, you know, big. Because it's like, look out here. All you see is guys wearing tool T-shirts. I'm trying to build up my female that's audience. Funny. So Maynard's a good dude. Uh, okay, great. I wasn't sure. I, yeah, but that's yeah. a great story, man. Yeah. That's great. That's so him, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so another major record label, part of the WIA family, Warner Electra Atlantic. So now let's talk about Electra Records. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I had some great years at Electra. I really, really enjoyed it. I love New York. I mean, I just love New York. I bought a condo as close to the uh, where John Lennon lives as I could get. And um, I found uh, uh, a, a lot of people within the Electra family. I worked with Greg Thompson. That were really great. Um, I've always my, heard good things about Greg. I've never met him, don't know him, but he, everyone has great things to say about Greg. Yeah, he's, he's great. He hired me. Uh, and Sylvia Rohn was wonderful to me. Yes, um, that's but, another w- woman uh, uh, executive that really went up the ranks. Heavyweight. And, is, and highly respected, Sylvia Rohn. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, she, her background's in promotion. So when you do promotion, you better know your stations and what their spins are because she'll know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. So I, you know, we had the Cure, and I always really gravitated towards their music. I thought it was really unusual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to a show. I went to a couple shows, but I went to this one specific show in New York. And Robert Smith had always been like kind of um, an enigma to me, you know, because of how varied he could be mm-hmm. and i i went to one of the shows and i would go backstage after every show to say hi to the artist to let you know the elector rep was there and da 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 and robert had what i thought was this, uh, 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 a gretsch white falcon this is a guitar that gretsch issued it was a thousand dollars to buy one he had a black one and i looked at it i go robert that's a black gretsch falcon i thought they were all white 
And he smiled. He said, you like guitars? I said, yeah, I do. He said, Gretsch only issued 10 of them, and I got one of them. Wow. wow. That's great. I said, did George Harrison get one by any chance? Because <laughs> he, you know, I played Gretsch. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't know. They never would reveal who else got him. He said, I would imagine he did. But he said, I got one, and I was a little surprised, but I love it. Would you like to try it? Oh, wow. <laughs> so he let me play his Gretsch Falcon, and I, you know, I, I fumbled through a few chords, and I was just like in awe. And uh, we, us from there, you know, whenever he would be in the building, he would stick his head in the office and say hello. And um, he was a great guy. Did he ever he ask you what guy. shade of lipstick he should wear that night for the show? <laughs> 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 no, you know, there he goes again. I tread, I, I, I tread very careful on those kinds of things. <laughs> what a great character, he, though. The and then the other thing was ACDC. You know, Angus was um, just you know he's such a, a character. You know, alive when he when he get, they pick him up and he plays guitar and he just can do anything. And I caught him at a party, and uh, I probably had a few beers. And I asked him, I said, you know, you've got that amazing SG guitar that's your signature. How many of those do you have? And he looked at me and he made me a funny look. He said, 75. Wow. Oh, my Holy gosh. cow. I said, Angus, you have 75 SK, uh, uh, SG guitars? He said, yeah. I said, where are they? He said, they're in a warehouse in England. Wow. Said, how, many of them, how many of them do you use? He said, oh, seven or eight. I go, what about the rest of them? He said, well, they're just there in case I ever need them. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So I said, said, what are the chances that you would pull one of those out of the warehouse and send it to your head of promotion here at Electra Records forevermore? (laughs) And he 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 said, then I'd have to send about 50 of them because everybody would want one. Yeah, (laughs) right. And this was the Brian Johnson era, ACDC, correct? Yes. Okay. So are you a guitar collector? I mean, do you have a lot of guitars now that since you, you know, have told us your admiration throughout the show today? Yeah, I, um, I have a Gretsch that I bought when I was 14, 15 years old that was like the one George Harrison played in Help, a Gretsch, Tennessee, and Burgundy. Wow. Uh, which, which is my baby. Uh, I have a Gold Top, Les Paul which I bought when I was in Champaign-Urbana, uh, playing in a band. Uh, and then I have a couple of really, really nice acoustics. And I have my eye on a Rickenbacker I want to buy. Oh, I love Rickenbacker. So, yeah, I, I, I love guitars, and I find it in common with a lot of, of uh, artists. They love to talk about guitars because it's such an important part of their lives. Yeah. Right. Well, going back to ACDC, what songs did you personally work uh, with them that you you know, really enjoyed that process of getting them on the radio and seeing them all the way through and that sort of thing? You know, I, I can't, I couldn't tell you anymore. I don't remember uh, so much their, their songs, uh, only their live shows. Yeah. Um, uh, the, um, George Capolini was the head of rock and he really engineered that. I did most of the top 40 stuff with Thompson. Got it. Got but, it. Uh, I love the band. I loved the band. Oh, that reminds me. We like to ask our guests, what was your first gold record? Uh, my first gold record was I'm Gonna Love You Just a Little Bit More by Barry White. Ah, nice. that's right. That's a good one. That's right, because yeah. you got to play it on KHJ. 
So uh, yeah, I got it. I can't. Before we close it out, I wanted to talk a little bit about Kenny Wayne Shepherd because uh, obviously that comes from radio and records and everybody all working together. His dad, you know, had a radio station. Yeah. All the exactly. record folks loved him, and so talk about working with uh, young Kenny Wayne. Well, Kenny Wayne was one of those things where um, I was at Curb Records at the time, and uh, Ken Shepard was at K Tux in Shreveport, right. and he needed the sh- he needed a show. And uh, I had Delbert McClinton. We were putting out an album called Every Time uh, that was had the song Every Time I Roll the Dice, which Ken was playing. So I said, let me see if I can get you a show. So I went to uh, the powers that be, and um, they said, yeah, yeah, he's playing it a lot. Let's get it. Let's get him a show. So Delbert got Ken Shepard got a show with Delbert McClinton, and I went down there to do the show and to Shreveport. And I got to the venue, and Ken said, I want you to meet my son. He's here. He's a guitar player. I said, oh great, you know. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and I go backstage, and here's Kenny Wayne, and he's sitting in the corner. He's got to be like 12 or 13, maybe, at that old. That's it. Yeah. And he's playing a, a, a Strat, and it's not plugged in. And it's a Stevie Ray Vaughan anniversary kind of guitar. And he's just like all over this fretboard playing all these licks. And I'm like, my God, this kid's good. And Ken says, oh, he's great. You know, I said, and Kenny Wayne comes up to me and said, I want to get on stage and jam with Delbert McClinton tonight. <laughs> I go, wow. Okay. I said, you know, I can ask. So I go up to Delbert and I said, Delbert, you know, there's this kid. And he's, nah, 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 he's a program director's son. He, said, he says, there's no way I got to rehearse with anybody. I said, okay, I get it. I get it. So I go back to Kenny. I said, he's not going to do it. But, you know, I tell you what, Kenny, I think you're great and I'll, I'll try to help you get a deal. So he said, oh, great. You know, so we separate and I went back down there. And I got a studio, and I cut uh, uh, three or four songs. Suit Me to a T by Buddy Guy was one of them. Yeah. And um, Kenny Wayne had an instrumental. We had a video of that. Anyway, we got it done. We gave it to Irving Azoff. Irving signed him. Oh. Wow. And uh, just like that. And he gave it to David Z to produce. So uh, I was that at that time at Zoo, and uh, Ken Shepard called me and said, we finished the album. We want you to come to Memphis. We're at the House of Blue Studio in Memphis to hear the album. I said, great. So Excellent. I jumped on a plane. I went, went out there. I listened to the album. It finished, and there were rough mixes, but, you know, you can tell. I said, I think it's really good, you guys, but I don't hear a radio record. And Ken Shepard looks at me. You don't hear a radio record. There's three of them. I said, well, you're asking me my opinion. I don't hear one. So I said to Kenny, I said, do you have any other songs that you have, you know, that you're writing that might work? He said, yeah, you know, uh, Mark Selby and Tia Sillers and I have come up with this song called Deja Voodoo. I said, play it for me. So he gets his guitar and he plays it for me. And I said, you guys didn't cut that? And they go, no, we didn't think it was ready. And I said, Kenny, you know, what do you think? He said, I love it. I said, let's do it. So we we rehearsed it. We woodshed it. We rehearsed it that day in some garage band uh, facility, rehearsal facility. We cut it the next day. I was there. We cut the song. I had to go back to work. They finished it, and that was the first single. Wow, That's what great. a great story! What? what and I want to. So, oh, go ahead, finish up. So you know, Kenny and I have been close to this day. If I text him, he'll get right back to me. I wonder if Delbert right. had a chance to roll the dice again if he let Kenny Wayne play with him this time. <laughs> 
So, you know, you know, funny you say that because <laughs> I went on and went to work for Electra and I'm at, at Electra and across the street at the, at the big venue there, it's a BB King, Delbert McClinton and Kenny Wayne. Or no, it's BB King, Kenny Wayne Shepard and Delbert McClinton. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Comes full so after, circle, right? Wow. After work, I go over, I see Kenny Wayne, and I walk, to, I walk down the hall with him. We're backstage. He introduces me to B.B. King, which was a total honor. Yeah. And then we walked, and I see Delbert in, in the dressing room, and I stick my head in the door. I don't even know if he recognized me, but I had Kenny with me. I said, Delbert, Bill Fordresher, Zoo Entertainment, da-da-da-da. And he looked at me and kind of says, yeah, how you doing? I said, and this is Kenny Wayne Shepherd. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a great, that's a great story. Well, well, for our listeners, I also want to say that uh, Kenny Wayne uh, Shepherd Sr. is also kind of infamous in the music business because he's the one that introduced Valerie Bertinelli to Eddie Van Halen at a Van Halen show in Shreveport. Wow. I but, didn't know that. Yes. What was oh, Valerie no. doing in Shreveport? She's from... Shreveport. Oh, she is. So okay. she's from Shreveport, and wow. it was close to Christmas holiday, I believe, either Thanksgiving or Christmas. Van Halen were on tour, and so you know she wanted to to see the band, and so Kenny got her her backstage pass and introduced her to uh, Eddie Van Halen, and now we have Wolfie. Yeah, now it's <laughs> Mammoth and WVH. Wow. What a great story. Yeah. That's- yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, Ken and I are still buddies. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's, All right. he's you know, done really well with Kenny. So to close out our show, um, you have one more really wonderful story about you and the infamous George Martin, who was the producer oh, God, engineer yeah. for the Beatles. Tell us that yeah. story. Well, this is probably my favorite. <laughs> Uh, I had a I have a, I had a friend in radio, God rest his soul, Ed Lambert, who was at KHKS in Dallas. We were very very close friends, and Sir George Martin was uh, coming to town to New York to promote his album In My Life, which he did towards the end of his career. And they were offering dinners to any program directors that wanted to meet with him. So Ed Lambert was coming, and he said, "Would you like to have dinner with George Martin?" I go, "Oh yeah, I guess." You know. <laughs> So we had a dinner with, I think there was like five or six of us. That was it. Giles Martin was there. I remember that. He was really nice. And George Martin said, listen, I'll just, you know, sit here and drink wine and we'll have some dinner. And you guys can ask me anything you want about the Beatles and about what we've done. And so I'm like, what an amazing opportunity, right? Yeah. I've gone, to, I've gone to heaven, you know? So I, I asked him about microphones and limiters and, you know, uh, the boys and the Beatles and everything. And and it went on for hours. And he he was liking it because I had a lot of produ- production uh, questions, you know, about microphones. Yeah. So anyway, we got to the end of the night and George Martin goes, you know, I got to do this tomorrow. I said, one more question, Bill, and then we'll, we'll call it a night. So I said to him, George, what one thing about the Beatles have you never told anyone else? Mm. That's a good question, right? That's that's like the best question ever. He goes, wow. And he thought about it, took a sip of wine, said, well, when one of the Beatles was in the studio, you could see their individual immense talent. When there were two Beatles together, there was an amazing brotherhood that existed among them. I said, wow. He said, three, when there were three Beatles together in the studio, there was electricity 
in the air amongst all of them, musical ideas, thoughts, jokes. And they were just uh, electric when they were together. He said, but when all four of them were together, it was pure magic. Wow. Bam. What a great story. George Martin goes to me and says, can I use that? (laughs) (laughs) Bill, it's been fun. Hey, let me ask you a question about that dinner. Knowing Mr. Ed, was it actually at Del Frisco in Dallas? No, no, it was in New York. <laughs> oh, it was in New York. Okay. I thought it, it might have been in Dallas here. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah well, that, that's a good guess. God bless Ed's wife. I love God, that, dude. He's it. such a great guy. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, Bill, this and has been a, pl- a pleasure. Can I, I put a plug in for my, my website? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Of course. Okay, I have a website with pictures and a lot of these stories in it. It's undersongs.com, U-N-D-E-R, songs, S-O-N-G-S.com. I appreciate it, guys. Of course. Great stories today. It's been a fun episode. Thank you so much, Bill Fordresser, for being our guest today. I loved it. You guys, it's been fabulous, and uh, I hope to meet you face-to-face soon. Yay. Come on down to Austin. Hang out with us in studio next time. I'll do it. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. All right. God bless. Take care. Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. We appreciate you subscribing and spreading the word, and thanks for listening.